things to shuffle up here. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith. It says, because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The promise of a reward is meaningless unless you believe that the one making the promise is trustworthy. A promise is only as good to you as your faith that that promise is true. If you deem the message to be false or dubious, you'll simply disregard it, and it won't make any difference to you. But if a promise of reward is given and you believe the one making that promise, it will affect you in a whole different way. You'll pay closer attention. You'll do whatever you need to do to put yourself in position to receive that reward. You may ask clarifying questions to make sure you understand the terms of that promise. But the only difference is that you believed the promise. The promise giver didn't change. The message of the promise didn't change. But in one case, you didn't believe it, so you disregarded it. In another, you believed it, and it changed everything. Our passage today in Galatians chapter 3 is an apt expression of that idea. The blessings of God's promises, his grace in the gospel, depend entirely upon whether you believe what you hear. We'll look at Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14 today. And the main idea of the passage is simply this. The gospel's blessings flow through faith. The gospel's blessings flow through faith. If you hear the gospel message and the promises of God in the gospel, and you don't believe it, then the gospel isn't good news to you. The gospel doesn't matter to you. The gospel doesn't help you. It hinges on whether we receive that message with faith. A little bit of context for where we are in the book of Galatians. Paul is writing this letter to young churches of Gentile, mostly Gentile converts in uh, the, the Roman province of Galatia, Churches that he probably planted, and then he's moved along, and now they are beginning to succumb to false teaching. So in the first nine verses of Galatians 1, he sort of states this problem up front. You are abandoning the true gospel. You are indeed deserting God and believing a false gospel, essentially that in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ and become more Jewish. You must observe certain Jewish law and, and ritual. And so he states the problem. The Galatians are veering away toward a false gospel. And then in chapter 1, verse 10, through about the middle of chapter 2, verse 14, Paul defends his apostolic authority and the divine origin of his gospel. I am authorized by God to speak to this. And the message I gave you that you initially believed and received was God's message, and now you're veering away. And so he speaks of his own authority and credibility as a messenger. And then in verses 15 through 21 of chapter 2 that we looked at last week, Paul succinctly, poignantly explains the true gospel, that no one will be justified that is made right, declared right with God on the basis of works of the law, but only on the basis of faith 
in Christ. So a person's right standing before God is entirely dependent on them being declared righteous through faith, not through their religious observance. And the flip side of that coin was the way that a Christian then lives his or her life for God is by that same measure. It's by faith in Christ. We continue to trust his promises, look to his word, believe that it is true, and to then live our lives uh, for his glory. Now in chapter 3, he's continuing the sort of explanation of the gospel, but he's going to look back. And of the first five verses, he's going to look back toward the Galatians' own sort of conversion. That is, when they received this gospel message from Paul's ministry and the evidences that they displayed that God was at work among them. And then he's going to spend the rest of chapter 3 looking even farther back to Abraham. So we're going to see some of Paul's ideas about how the gospel was portrayed and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And that will actually take up a good portion of the next couple of chapters. The point, again, of this message, this passage, is the gospel's blessings flow through faith. And we're going to see three of those blessings. Through faith we are supplied with the Spirit, counted as righteous, and redeemed from the curse. We will take those one at a time, but just one more time if you're writing these points out in advance. Three of the blessings of the gospel that come to us through faith are that we are supplied with the Spirit, we are counted as righteous, and we are redeemed from the curse. Let's look together at the first five verses. I'm going to read to you chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We're going to pause right there, even though I recognize in the ESV that's right in the middle of a sentence. So hang with me. Through faith, we are supplied with the Spirit. I think that's the overarching theme of these verses as Paul looks back and invites the Galatians to look back upon their own experience of God's grace when they received the gospel. I'm, gonna, I'm sliding around up here. I'm going to shift a little. Sorry. There we go. It's sitting right on top of a power outlet, so it was like slippery. All right. TMI, sorry. Okay. So in these few verses, Paul looks back at the Galatians' conversion and affirms the apparent sincerity and legitimacy of their experience of God's grace. In these few verses, he gives five evidences, if you will, uh, that the Galatians had truly received the gospel message with faith. First of all, he says that you saw Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. We'll come back to that in just a minute and explain what that means. But you, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He tells them that they received the Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit of God who would come to indwell them and empower them. 
He says that you began by the Spirit, having begun by the Spirit. So in other words, their Christian life, their journey of faith had begun with the Spirit of God indeed indwelling and empowering them. He tells them that they had suffered for the gospel. Had, did you suffer so many things, presumably persecution and social pressure, because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their turning away from the sort of pagan rituals and religion of their day? And then finally, he speaks of the Spirit being supplied to them and working miracles among them. So in this early time, in this first generation of Christianity, as the church is being birthed, the Spirit of God, of course, is performing all kinds of signs and wonders among the people. And so he points to those things. You experience the miraculous working of the Spirit of God. All of those things attributed to the fact that they heard with faith. He repeats that phrase throughout these verses. Did you uh, receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law? That is, did the Spirit of God come to you because you obeyed the law really well? Or simply because you heard with faith? That is, you believed the message that was preached to you. So there are all these evidences that Paul points to of uh, how it seemed that the Galatians had received and believed the gospel message. Now, when Paul speaks of Jesus Christ being publicly portrayed as crucified... I think that actually gives us a good uh, measure of our own evangelism, our own preaching of the gospel. He's speaking here of how the gospel came to them. Speaking, of course, of Paul's own ministry and his associates who were with him, proclaiming Christ and leading sinners toward the gospel and toward repentance. And he says in that preaching, in that evangelistic ministry, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He doesn't mean literally, that they've become witnesses to the crucifixion. They weren't there when it happened. But it's as though in the preaching of the gospel, Jesus has been portrayed as crucified for sinners. It's like they're seeing it as though it, as it had really happened. And I think that's a good benchmark for us and for what our evangelism should be. When we give someone the gospel, what we should be doing is presenting Christ, displaying Christ as crucified for sinners. Oftentimes when we speak of evangelism, we use the language of sharing. We share our faith or we share the gospel. I don't think that's a bad way to talk about it, but I think it's even more helpful to say that what we're doing in evangelism is presenting Christ. We're portraying Christ as crucified for sinners. And so that actually gives us a check for when we are sharing the gospel with somebody Has somebody, in my words, heard enough that they can recognize Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice for sin? Have we portrayed Christ as crucified? We are showing them Jesus Christ in our words. So more than our own sort of personal stories of transformation, your personal testimony, that was that was always highlighted in churches where I was growing up. No one can argue with your testimony, so just tell them what Jesus has done for you. And I think there's value in sharing what Jesus has done for me when I'm speaking with an unbeliever, and I want to commend the gospel to them. But what Jesus has done in my life personally is not the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation is Christ crucified for sinners. So we need to make sure that we are portraying him as crucified for sinners in our evangelism. We should seek to portray him as having gone to the cross, paying our debt, crucified for sinners. 
Now, the point that he's making in all of this is that their experience of God's grace upon their conversion was powerful. It was, it was palpable. It was obvious. And now they are foolishly, he calls them fools twice, they are foolishly rejecting the basis upon which that grace was given to them. You heard the gospel and believed it. And now, instead of continuing in faith, you're thinking that you're going to be perfected, that is sanctified, that is continuing in the, the Christian life by works of the law. As though your, your, your faith, your, your Christian life starts with believing the gospel, but then you kind of move on. Right? That's kind of what they're saying. Well, now we've moved on from the gospel to applying biblical principles right? and to following the, the commands of God, and that's how we grow. This is not to say that the commands of God don't matter and that we aren't to follow God's commands, because indeed we are. But if we think that our sanctification comes by virtue of our law-keeping, we're falling into the same error that the Galatian believers we're falling into. He begins through, he, throughout these verses, he contrasts the law and the flesh, that is human fallen weakness, with faith and the spirit, that is the spirit of God. He says, you received the spirit and by hearing with faith, not by works of the law. He actually states that Oppositely, excuse me. He states that in the opposite way as a question. He asks all these rhetorical questions in these verses. Did you receive the gospel, receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so, law and faith are set apart from one another, against one another. You have begun by the Spirit, that is, by the Spirit of God who is given and who indwells you. But now you're attempting to be perfected by the flesh. So flesh and law are related to each other, tied up together. That is, in my strength, in my power, I'm going to keep God's law. That's how law and flesh might relate. And so I could think God is going to be pleased with me on the basis of my efforts, my ability to keep his commands. And he says, that is foolishness, right? You received the Spirit by hearing with faith. And indeed, you continue you ought to continue in the faith by hearing with faith and by the Spirit of God. And the third thing is, he says is that the, the Spirit was given, was supplied to you, and miracles worked among you, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. In other words, God didn't do powerful things among you because you were doing so much good stuff. God did powerful things among you because you believed him. He gave you himself and his gospel, and you trusted what he said was true, and thereby the Spirit worked miracles among you. And this implies, by the way, ongoing day-to-day -day experience of God's presence and ministry through the Holy Spirit. So he's looked back to their conversion, but he's also implying the ongoing day-to-day -day Christian life. He says that the way the Spirit is thus supplied and miracles performed is by hearing with faith. In other words, it's the same. The same way that you come to faith, that you are converted to Christ by hearing the gospel and believing it, is the same way that you will grow in your Christian life. This, friends, is still the way that God works in and among his people, by hearing with faith. 
Just as hearing the gospel and believing it is how your Christian life began, so listening to God's word and believing him is how you will continue to grow in your Christian life. Are you paying attention to God's word? Are you listening for the conviction and the counsel of the Spirit of God as you read the Bible, as you pray, as you hear sermons like this one? Are you heeding the voice of conscience that urges you which way to walk and which paths to avoid? Hearing God's word and believing it is how we continue to grow as Christians. So the first gospel blessing then that flows to us through faith is that we are supplied with the Spirit. When a sinner trusts in Jesus, receives the gospel with faith, the Spirit of God comes at that moment to indwell him, to take up residence in him or her, to seal him or her until the day of their final glorification when Christ returns. In the next few verses, we're introduced to a second gospel blessing. Namely, through faith, we are counted as righteous. Look with me at verse 6 through 9. Now, this begins kind of in the middle of a sentence, so I'm going to back up just for context. So verse 5, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. So Paul introduces here the, the, the Old Testament character of Abraham as an analogy for the kind of faith-based faith living to which he's calling the Galatians. And his invoking of Abraham is brilliant in this context. The false teachers are saying to the Gentiles, essentially, in order to be saved, you need to be more Jewish. Right? You need to keep the Jewish law. And so Paul says, oh, okay, you want to talk about being Jewish? Let's look at the most Jewish guy of all, Abraham, the father of the nation, the man from whom the people of Israel would descend. And let's see what made him acceptable to God. If you're saying Gentiles need to become more Jewish, and by that you mean they need to follow the law better, let's see if that was true of Abraham. Was Abraham acceptable to God because of how well he followed God's law, or was it something else? And he said there very clearly in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as Righteousness. That, is a, that counted is, a, is an accounting term where one thing is designated as something else. So God saw Abraham's faith, that he believed God's word, and he designated that as righteousness. He counted that as righteousness. He credited Abraham 
with righteousness. So God did not observe Abraham doing righteous deeds and thereby regard him as righteous. Rather, God saw that Abraham trusted in God's faithfulness and credited credited it to him as righteousness. From God's perspective, faith equals righteousness in the economy of the gospel. Why? Because it's an implicit rejection of self-righteousness. If I believe in God's word and on that basis am counted righteous, I am implying that I don't make myself righteous by my law-keeping, by my faithful religious observance. And so Paul says, if you want to talk about being Jewish, let's look at where this all started and think about how he was made right with God. And it was not on the basis of his law-keeping, it was on the basis of his faith. The blessings of the gospel flowed to Abraham through faith. And just as Abraham's righteousness was credited to him on the basis of faith, so will the Gentiles' faith in the gospel be credited to them as righteousness. And it's implied that righteousness will be credited to them not on the basis of their adherence to the law, but on the basis of their trust in God and his promises in the gospel. And those, including Gentiles, who are of faith, that is, those who are believing the gospel, are, he says, sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham, both figuratively and positionally. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't say that those are sons of Abraham who physically descended from Abraham. This is a change. To be Israel, to be the people of God, is not to be a physical descendant of Abraham, it's to be of the same faith as Abraham. And so he says we're sons of Abraham. There's two senses in which that's true. First of all, figuratively, I think, you resemble him. When we speak of someone being the son of their father, what we mean is, wow, you're a lot like him, right? I can see your father in you. And so as sinners believe the gospel. They hear the gospel message about Jesus crucified for sinners and being made righteous not on the basis of their obedience, but on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. They have faith. They trust in him. They take his promises as true, and thereby they resemble their father, Abraham, who was the man of faith. Because Abraham heard the promises of God that he would be the father of many nations and that through him all the nations would be blessed and he believed God and he counted it as righteousness to him. So we resemble our father Abraham when we have faith in the promise of God. And secondly, positionally, we are sons of Abraham in that you are in the same family. You have joined the family of Abraham as his true descendants, true Israel, by your faith in Christ. And this is something that the New Testament does throughout, if you're looking for it. it, The authors of the New Testament regularly take language and images and themes that in the Old Covenant applied only to the nation of Israel, and they apply those images and themes and promises to the church, that is, all those, Jew and Gentile, who are redeemed by Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So, for example, 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of the church of Jesus being a holy nation and a chosen race and a royal priesthood, right? Those are images that would have only spoken of the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant. And now Peter is saying this applies to all of those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation, namely the church. And that happens throughout the book of Revelation. You could keep going with this. But images and themes that were about Israel nationally under the Old Covenant now apply to the church, Jew and Gentile around the world, who are redeemed by faith in Christ. And so you, if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, are a son of Abraham. This is why, although nobody explained this to me when I was a kid, this is why kids always sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Anybody remember this song? Many sons had Father Abraham. You can sing with me. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Okay, we're not going to do all the rest of that, but all right. I am one of them, and so are you. It never really occurred to me to think, what does that mean? How am I a son of Abraham? This is how. We are sons of Abraham when we trust in Christ, when we believe the gospel, when we hear God's word and receive it with faith, we are sons of Abraham. And he's got a whole lot more sons than just national Israelites. He has descendants all over the globe from every people and tribe and nation of the earth, redeemed through Jesus Christ. And this, I want you to notice, was the purpose of God from the beginning. Because when he quotes Genesis 15, 6, speaking of God's promise to Abraham, what he says was, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This was never just about national Israel. It started there. That was a shadow of the work that God was planning to do through Christ. But it was never just about one nation. It was always about the blessing of all the nations, all the ethne, all the peoples of the earth through Christ. So his promise to Abraham was much bigger than just his own people. And Abraham seemed to recognize that. Indeed, he knew that when he died, he was actually still waiting for the promised kingdom, the promised city that was to come. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 11. The scripture preached the gospel beforehand. I love that language in verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So the scripture, the word of God is sort of personified here, as though the word of God foresaw what God was, God was doing and thereby proclaimed to Abraham the seed of this global gospel. And the blessing of Abraham then is extended to all the nations, all the peoples who would believe upon God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So, through hearing with faith, we are counted as righteous. That's the point of those few verses. And then in verses 10 to 14, we learn that through faith we are redeemed from the curse. And he's going to continue sort of a, a bit of Old Testament exposition, and he quotes from a lot of different places here. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy twice. He quotes from the book of Leviticus. He quotes from the prophet Habakkuk. 
So we have a bunch of Old Testament quotations here kind of thrown in to make this same point that we receive the blessings of the gospel, namely redemption from the curse through faith, through hearing his word and believing it. Let me read verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. For all who rely on works of the law. This is another reason that he's giving why God's blessing, God's righteousness comes to those who are of faith, not to those who try to keep the law. Namely, you are cursed if you live by that rule. If you aim to achieve your righteousness before God by keeping the law, then you have to faithfully keep it at every part. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So if you're going to try to obtain your righteous standing before God by law keeping, you better get it right. That's the curse. And Paul here quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now that quote comes immediately before the famous passage of Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God outlines for the people of Israel the curses of disobedience to the covenant and the blessings of obedience to the covenant. If you keep my covenant, I'll be with you, I will strengthen you, all these things, right? And actually, that list, if you read it in Deuteronomy 28, it's pretty short. It's, it's huge stuff, but it's not a lengthy list. But then when it says, but if you disobey the covenant, if you break the covenant, if you don't keep this law, you get this long list of ways that God will be against you, that the curses of God's displeasure will fall upon them if they disobey the covenant, if they disobey the law. So he says that you are cursed if you do not abide by all the things written in the book. And then similarly, he quotes Leviticus 18.5, where he says, The law is not of faith. Rather, and here's the quotation, The one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you depend on law-keeping to gain a righteous standing before God, you'd better get it all right because there is no margin for error. You start to understand why Paul thinks this is foolish. You had a good thing going here, Galatians. You had simply received the message of Christ crucified for sinners and believed it and thereby been counted as righteous, and now you're abandoning that in favor 
of gaining your righteousness by keeping every law that's written? This is utter foolishness. You see, folks, salvation by works, apart from heretical, is a terrifying prospect for life. Have you ever thought to yourself, what would have happened if Adam and Eve had never sinned? Right? We know about the fall of mankind when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit, right? What would have happened if they had never eaten that fruit? Would humanity then have just sort of continued in a state of innocence? But then a sobering thought perhaps immediately follows. Well, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, there's a pretty good chance their children would have sinned or the generation after them, and then we'd be in this same mess again anyway, right? And that hypothetical flight of fancy actually expresses the terror of law-based righteousness. Because an innocent person is only ever one step away from losing his footing and obliterating his good standing with God. It only takes one sin, one unholy desire, one destructive word, one rebellious decision to take your perfect record of law-abiding righteousness and sully it beyond repair. This is why Paul is so mystified at the inclination of the Galatian believers to veer away from grace and back toward law-based righteousness. Even if it were possible to somehow reverse the stain of sin and regain a perfectly clean record of law-keeping before God, you would not then be able to maintain that clean record. You would once again and again and again rebel against God and destroy your good standing all over again. And that's what makes God's gospel the one that Paul preached to the Galatians, the one they originally believed, such astoundingly good news. You will sin again. You will rebel against God and his ways again. You will elevate your own desires above his commands again. And yet, your good standing with God, the status of your righteousness before him, will not be affected in the slightest. You are righteous before God, not on the basis of law-keeping, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness through faith. Why? Because your standing with God isn't based on your record, but on Christ's. Your righteousness before God depends not on your obedience, but on Christ's. Your secure place in his heart is not rooted in your avoidance of sin, but in Christ taking the curse of sin upon himself in his death. In verse 13, which is a quote of Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so he tells us the good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Don't turn away from this. Don't turn away from this sure footing, this settled standing before God in favor of trying to earn your way into his good graces 
by your law keeping. You can't do it. Listen to Luther on this verse. He says, when he took the sins of the whole world upon himself, Christ was no longer an innocent person. He was a sinner, burdened with the sins of Paul, who was a blasphemer, burdened with the sins of Peter, who denied Christ, burdened with the sins of David, who committed adultery and murder and gave the heathen occasion to laugh at the Lord. In short, Christ was charged with the sins of all men that he should pay for them with his own blood. The curse struck him. The law found him among sinners, so the law judged and hanged him for a sinner. The upshot of all of this, according to verse 14, is that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Two observations here that tie in elements from earlier in this passage. First of all, Christ's judgment on the cross fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. More precisely, it, it purchased the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham because the final consummation of that covenant is actually still yet to be revealed in the eternal kingdom. But Christ's judgment on the cross fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. When he speaks of the blessing of Abraham, he means the inheritance, the descendants, the land, the, the blessing of God's presence that God promised to Abraham and to the nations who would come to believe as Abraham had done. Because of Christ's death on the cross, God could thereby justify the Gentiles by faith, which points back to verse 8. Friends, never lose sight of the diverse, global, multicultural shape of the gospel from the very beginning. It was always for the nations. It was not for the Jews to keep the gospel to themselves. It's not for us to keep the gospel to ourselves. We must tell the nations, the nations at our doorstep and the nations around the world. Christ's judgment on the cross fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. And the second observation is this. Christ's judgment on the cross and sinners' faith in him provide believers with the Holy Spirit. And so we've come full circle to the beginning of this passage. Back in verses 2 and 5, Paul told the Galatians that they had received the Spirit and experienced His power by hearing with faith. And so here, at the conclusion of this little portion of his argument, we come to see that the result of Christ's judgment on the cross in our place is that the Holy Spirit, whom God promised to send, would come to His people. That is, to those who hear the message about Jesus Christ and respond with faith. Through hearing with faith, we are redeemed from the curse. So, let me ask you, do you believe? Have you heard the gospel message and received it with faith? Are you walking day by day in dependent faith upon God's provision for you in Jesus Christ, experiencing the Spirit's presence and power through hearing with faith? 
Friend, when you're trusting in the grace of God in Christ for your standing with him, you can rest confidently in his embrace, knowing that your sin can never unbind the cords of love that he's enfolded around you. Those cords are as whole as Christ's righteous life, as effective as his atoning death, and as strong as the power that raised him from the dead. Let's pray together.